Welcome to Brit David Podcast, as we continue our study, book by book, alphabetically, through the Bible. Tonight, we look at the book of Titus, with a message entitled, God's Remarkable, Amazing, Compelling, Excellent Grace, from Titus 2, verse 11 through 14. Here's Pastor Tim. So this morning we were uh, introduced to the first verse of the last paragraph in uh, Titus chapter number 2. So if you want to take your Bible and turn there with me, we really used that and uh, just a couple of parts of that verse as a springboard into trying to answer that particular question this morning. Tonight what I want to do with you, however, is to dig deep into this verse and the surrounding verses that are in that paragraph as far as what Paul really has to say to Timothy and thus what Paul has to say to us, what God has to say to us. You'll notice and you'll recall even from this morning that Paul really emphasized the grace of God. And really as you go through the rest of this final paragraph, that's That's really what you see. You see God's grace that's on display. What I would call God's remarkable, amazing, compelling, effective grace. If it's God's remarkable, amazing, compelling, and effective, guess what that spells? Okay, work on it if you don't know. There we go. Grace, grace, right? That's what we're talking about. We're talking about God's grace. And it is remarkable. And it is amazing. And it is compelling for us. And it is effective to us. If it's not, not one of us probably would be here. And even if we were here, one of these days we wouldn't be there. And so we want to make sure that we understand God's grace and what it is that He is doing in us and what He's doing through us. If you're there in Titus chapter number 2, look, if you will, back once again in verse number 11. Paul writes to Titus and says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. This is what I would learn first about God's great grace. It's by God's grace that we are saved. By God's grace, we are saved. What does he say? He says it is by God's grace... It is God's grace that brings salvation to all men. It's not something that you can do on your own. It's something that He has to do for you. In fact, if uh, if you'll skip ahead to chapter number 3 with me for just a moment, I also will recall for you a verse that we looked at this morning in verse number 4. He says, But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, then look at verse number 5. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. So it's not a work of righteousness that you yourself can do. In other words, you can't just join a church and then say, well, that means now that I'm right with God. It it doesn't mean that you can go through the baptism. And, and say, okay, well, I've been baptized, now I'm right with God. Or the offering plate passed and I put something in there, now I'm right with God. 
There's not any work of righteousness that you can do. Isaiah said it this way. He said, all of our righteousness is like filthy rags before the Lord. There's nothing that we have that we can offer God that says, you must save me, you must make me right. Instead, it is what we learn in chapter 3 and verse number 5, it's by His mercy. What we learn in chapter 2 and verse 11 is that it's by God's grace. They're like cousins, they're like two sides of the same coin. Grace and mercy. Grace, God giving to me what I do not deserve. Mercy, God God not giving to me what I do deserve. God's grace and God's mercy work together to bring us salvation. He says the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. As we celebrate Christmas, that's what Christmas is really about. It's not just about the gifts, it's not about the trees, it's not about all of these trimmings that go with Christmas. It's about how God entered into our world and He Himself has saved us. He has saved us. Look at this verse. Skip down, if you will, to verse number 14. The first part of that. How does God's grace bring us salvation? It's talking about Christ. You see that at the end of verse number 13, our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us, that He might redeem us. So it's not something that I can do for Him or something that I can do in His presence. Instead, it's something that He must do for me. And how does He do that? He gives Himself for me. You know, from time to time, people will say, Um, When you say that you're saved, what does that mean? When you say that you're saved, what are you saved from? And it's amazing how, how many people just don't know. They don't know what they have been saved from. What have you been saved from? You've been saved from separation from God for forever. You've been saved from hell. You've been saved from the penalty of your sin. What is the penalty of that sin? The wages of sin is death, the Bible says. Wage is simply what you earn for what you do. And if what you're doing is a sin, what do you earn? The Bible says that it's death. Not just physical death, but spiritual death. Eternal death. It's not just the separation of life from the body. It's the separation of a person from God for forever. That's what He saved me from. You know, from time to time, people will say, well, why did Jesus have to die? You know, I mean, why couldn't He just come and say, okay, everybody's saved now. Why why couldn't He do that? Because the wages of sin is death, right? That wage has to be paid. That price has to be paid. The penalty has to be paid. And there's only one payment, and that's death. So you either pay it on your own for all of eternity, or you allow Christ to pay that penalty for you on the cross one time for all people. This grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all people. He has given Himself for us. And then it says in there in verse number 14 that He might redeem us. 
You know what redeem is. You have a coupon that you redeem. It's a, it's a form of payment, right? You're being paid. So then the question comes, if Jesus' death is the payment, then who is the payment being made to? Is Jesus paying this payment to us? No. Is he paying this payment to the devil? If after all, if the devil is the God of this age, the God of this world, if he has me now because of my sin trapped forever, unless God does something different, trapped forever in the kingdom of darkness, then is it just that Jesus is paying my way out? You know, we're playing Monopoly and and I'm in jail and suddenly Jesus plays the get out of jail free card, get out of hell free card. No, he's not paying this to Satan. He doesn't owe Satan anything. Satan is not in authority over God. He's not in authority over Jesus. By the way, he is not even Jesus' equal opposite. Sometimes we think in those terms that there's some great battle that Jesus and Satan go at each other and Jesus finally gets to win. No, Jesus comes back in with a word, speaks victory. He's not his equal opposite. Jesus is the eternal God. Did you notice it there at the end of verse number 13 when he talks about the appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ? He is God. Satan is merely a created being. But let me get back to this. He's not paying a ransom, if you will, to the devil. So if there's a payment that's being made and he's not paying it to us, he's not paying it to Satan, he's not paying it to the grave, who is he paying this payment to? He's paying it to God. I mean... You could say, well, he's just paying himself. Well, technically he's paying the Father, but yes, yes, he is somewhat paying himself. The Bible uses the word propitiation. Sometimes your translation may choose the word expiation. I like the word propitiation. It means God's satisfactory sacrifice. In other words, what is the one thing, the one thing that pays the adequate price of our sin? What is it that God's holiness really demands? It's the death of His own Son. It's His blood being poured out. Not yours, not a calf, not a sheep. Not a lamb, not a bird. It's only the blood of Jesus. That's why he says that he has given himself for us. Christmas is about the incarnation of God. God the Son becoming a man. Putting himself in flesh and blood. Putting him in that time frame and in that time and space. Being born simply to die for us. He has appeared to us for that very reason. So what I want you to see in these verses today as Paul writes to Titus about God's remarkable, amazing, compelling, effective grace is that by that grace we are saved. That's God's work. 
It's remarkable. It's amazing. It is compelling. And it's effective for all time. Number two. By God's grace, not only are we saved, but by God's grace, we are sanctified. We're sanctified. Look, if you will, in verse number 12. He writes and continues the sentence by saying, Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly. We should live righteously. And we should live godly in the present age. By the way, there's no other age for you to live in other than the present age. You can't go back and live in a day that you think is better than this day. You can't escape to the future and live in the future. God has placed you here at this time in this place for the opportunities that he's given to you now. You will live in this present age. And he says there's a certain way that we are to live. We're to live soberly, righteously, and godly during this particular time. How are we supposed to do that? How are sinners separated from God? How is a sinner supposed to live in that way? If, my, if Isaiah is right by saying that all of my righteousness, all of my righteous acts are like filthy rags before God, then why does, he, why does He receive my life of righteousness that He mentions here? Let's go back up into the verse. He says, teaching us that. In other words, this is a process, isn't it? It's not, a, it's not something that you are even reborn into immediately. As if suddenly you already know all things. That there's nothing that gets in your way. There's nothing that hinders you in your walk with Christ. That suddenly you are walking in absolute perfection. Now, if you're walking in absolute perfection, then please come see me afterwards. (laughs) Because I want to take some notes. Because I have a hard time with that one. I have a hard time living the way that I ought to live, living soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. So it's something that he is teaching you. Why is it important to read your Bible every day? Because he's teaching you. Why is it important that you come to church every week? Because he's teaching you. Why why do we bother to have a, a worship service in the morning and then another worship service in the evening? Because he's teaching you. And all of those lessons begin to build up in your life as you begin to learn those things. Principle upon principle, line upon line, precept upon precept, Isaiah says. You're continuing to learn how to live out this Christian life as God lives his life through you. So he says it's something that he's teaching. That time of teaching begins at the moment that you become a believer. Now, does that mean that before you're a believer that you can never learn anything about God or about church or about salvation or about any of those things? No, it's not that you can't learn those things. But now with the Spirit of God living inside of you, there's a whole new way for you to process that. A whole new way of understanding. If all I'm ever going to be is a natural man, 
and filled with knowledge about God and about the Bible and about church and about God's ways. I'll find that I spend an entire life learning about Him and never really getting to know Him. And there's a difference. So He is teaching me these things all along the way. Now, what is it that He's teaching me? What is it that really has begun from the moment that I asked Jesus to come into my heart until the very day that He takes me on to heaven? It's a process that we call sanctification. Sanctification is a word that means to be separate, to set apart. Now, we are set apart as God's people. Once we're saved, we're set apart, but in two ways. You're set apart from something, and you're set apart for something. There's a difference, isn't there? I set something apart from other things that I might keep this one thing clean, right? I want it to be clean. This, this that I'm concerned about, this, this something of great value, to God, that's you. He separates you from things that will make you unclean, make you unfit. And so He wants to separate you from those things. What kinds of things? Look back in verse 12. Denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. Denying ungodliness. Anything that is opposed to Him. Anything that goes against what He would say. But we, we have this tremendous amount of, of common knowledge, of common understanding, of sometimes we say common sense. Well, an unbeliever has that. If I'm basing my whole Christian walk on the things that an unbeliever can know, that my Christian walk is no more than the best that I can do, which is not very much. So instead, God sets us apart from those things. He sets us apart from ungodliness. And He sets us apart from worldly lusts. Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He is the God of this age, the God of this world. And like a carrot, he dangles those temptations in front of you so that you will follow after him. How do you say no to a carrot when all you want and all you eat are carrots? Because he's not going to dangle something gross in front of you, is he? If Satan were to dangle a T-bone steak in front of me, it wouldn't tempt me not one bit. But if he dangles a jar of peanut butter in front of me, I might go after that one. You see, there's some things that, that will trip me up that you don't have any problem with. There's some things that trip you up that the person sitting next to you doesn't have any problem with. It's part of why we need one another. That we might hold one another accountable because every one of us are in this process of sanctification. We're being set apart from ungodliness. We're being set apart from these worldly lusts, these carrots, these temptations that Satan puts out there in front of us. He wants us to be set apart from that. You are precious to him. He doesn't want you 
dirty. So he sets you apart from some things. But he sets you apart for something as well. What's he set you apart for? For his exclusive use. For his exclusive use. For the exclusive relationship that he may have with you. He sets you apart for himself. That's why he says that when he comes again, he says, I will receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. It's being with Him. Notice what Paul says to Titus. We're set apart from ungodliness and worldly lust. We're set apart for living soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Join us tomorrow as Pastor Tim continues his message from Titus chapter 2. Pastor Tim would love to connect and share with you about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and how you can know that you know that Jesus is your Savior and Lord. That address is churchoffice at brittdavid.org. We are located at 2801 West Britt David Road, Columbus, Georgia, 31909. Thanks again for joining us here on Britt David Podcast.